Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, or whenever you're listening to our Hope Interrupted, the podcast. I'm Byron McCauley, uh, co-host of the Hope Interrupted podcast, and we have a fun-filled, power-packed hour or half hour, <laughs> or however long we decide to go tonight, um, because we have a wonderful guest. But first, I want to talk a little bit about our book, Hope Interrupted. Uh, as you know, if you've been listening to us for the past few weeks, we've been expecting and teasing and hoping and getting ready for our book to air, to, to come out rather, to publish. And so now uh, it is published. You can find our book on Amazon. You can find our book on uh, orangefraser.com. And you can also find our book on hopeinterrupted.com. So we are very excited about it. It's out. Uh, get one, get one from, for your family and friends. We are guarantee, uh, we guarantee you that it will be interesting. So tonight, Jennifer, I want to turn this over to you because you're, you have a great guest to introduce tonight. One of my favorite people. She's one of my favorite people too. I'm going to do one more mini plug. Independent bookstores will have our book too in that's the months right. ahead. So that's a big deal. And as co-authors, we were called righteous. <laughs> we were called righteous. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I you love, haven't lost that love and feeling, though. You see what I did there, right? Yeah, no, right. I love that. I love that yeah. we were called. Yeah. I don't think I've ever been called righteous before. Yeah. So <laughs> with that, we are honored to be joined tonight. We tape at night, so it's night by Charmaine McGuffey. And a little about Charmaine. Most everyone listening has probably heard of Charmaine by now. She is one of the few female sheriffs in the United States. She is the first female gay sheriff in Hamilton County. Charmaine had a challenging upbringing, great mother, but did have to live in an orphanage for a while. And she really has been out there. She is career law enforcement. For those of you who remember, um, she has worked through throughout all the different ranks. And a little known fact, she was on the University of Cincinnati swim team. <laughs> wow, that's impressive. Because we know the history behind that swim team. It has some Olympians on it. I'm going to say that right now. So. And she, we, I, we were fortunate to be neighbors for a while. So that was cool. So with that, um, one, congratulations to Charmaine, who's been known as from places as far away as Australia for her election. And, she, and it was a sweep. She, she, yeah, she did really well. So with that, what, hello, Charmaine. Hi. Hi, Byron. Hi, Jennifer. It's great to see you. Great to be on your show. I, your podcast is, uh, I'm really happy to be invited. So thanks. So thanks we, want, we want to start with something that is easy. Mm -hmm. Great. <laughs> what your objectives are as being the sheriff of Hamilton County? What, where, what are your priorities? Well, of course, in this COVID uh, time, uh, one of the priorities is that we work safely that we try to keep our population safe and healthy and our officers safe and healthy throughout the department. Um, also that we are creating a community affairs division so that we can reach out to the community 
in real life ways, uh, in real time, and um, actually make a difference for people, and also uh, increase the trust that people have with law enforcement. Because as we know across the nation, uh, that trust has been, um, you know, really broken in many places, and we want to repair that. So some of those endeavors that I'm going to do, like the Citizens Advisory Review Board, I'm going to bring volunteer citizens on to um, to be really viewing and looking at our policy and procedure so that we can be very transparent. I'm improving the food for the for the people who are incarcerated. Um, I'm in trying to improve their lives and their medical care and all of the things that go along with being incarcerated for a period of time so that you, you lose your way um, when you come out that door because a lot of things have been taken from you. Uh, you've been languishing in incarceration sometimes for a very long time. And we need to make sure that you're ready to go out that door and begin a life that is not a life of crime or recidivism. And so those are just some of my objectives. Uh, we're working very hard towards those things right now as we speak. How has, and then I'm going to ask one question and Byron will go next. Um, mm -hmm. How was life inside the jail during COVID? Because there's been a lot written about frankly, how dangerous it is with illness for both folks who work there and folks who happen to be incarcerated? Uh, well, I will tell you, the uh, people who are incarcerated in our jail have been suffering, and I do mean that, suffering uh, from uh, all of, the, all of the, the aspects of this COVID pandemic because they have really felt the brunt of it. Um, when we didn't have enough staff because we had staff out sick or isolated, um, the prisoners have to spend an inordinate amount of time in their cells. I mean, I'm talking 18, 20 hours a day, and that's a lot of time to spend in your cell day after day after day. Um, recreation was closed down. At one point, we couldn't get proper commissary to them, um, and those are items that the prisoners are allowed to you know, purchase and buy for a little bit of their own comfort inside that jail. Um, <clears throat> we weren't able to do that. Visits were stopped. So it, it cut off activity for anybody uh, that was linked to family or children or wanted to see anybody. Even our mail system was interrupted. So, you know, it was quite the hardship and still is for the prisoners in the jail. And we're seeing it with increased fights. We're seeing it with increased assaults on officers. Um, those are the kinds of things that are happening in that jail that we are frantically working to remedy, uh, to get ourselves opened up again. But I tell you, um, it has really had a profound effect on those prisoners inside that jail. And then um, by the same token, our officers have suffered. Um, we had uh, uh, 100 officers that came down with COVID. And that's a we're a 900 strong department. So people may think that's, you know, not a lot. Well, it is a lot. 100 it's is huge. a lot. It's huge. I mean, yeah. And um, even though we're 900 strong, it's it's uh, very difficult to deal with that. And tragically, I will share with you one of our officers, Donald Gilreath, did die of COVID. Um, he was a 36 year old man. Um, he worked in our jail during COVID, continued to come to work, continued to serve his community and duty and uniform. 
he worked in uh, a spot in our jail that encountered a lot of people coming and going. And he did contract, contract COVID. He went into the hospital. And after th- roughly three weeks, he did die. He had three children and a wife. Um, it was absolutely devastating for all of us. I mean, we never expected it. You know, there were some officers that were pretty sick and so forth, but people were recovering. And him being so young, 36, you know, we never thought that we wouldn't see him again. And he was, you know, it it, it does um, bring, I'm sorry, he was, he was very popular. Uh, we all very much loved him. Uh, I got, I got messages from attorneys, judges who, who knew him because so many people had interacted with him. So COVID uh, was very devastating for our department. We had to bury one of our own. And that was a line of duty death, by the way. Okay. Uh, we did categorize that as a line of duty death because it was. You know, thank you, for Sheriff McGuffey, for, for telling us that information because, you know, that is so important to acknowledge that. That's something we, we don't, in the general um, population, really hear much about. Not only uh, one of your, one of your um, employees dying in the line of duty, popular, you know, we have mm-hmm. sent condolences out to his family and his young children. I have young children myself. Jennifer has children. We all, you know, we all know what that, we wonder what that must feel like. And a loss that early is, is really difficult. Um, yes. yes. So, and then you, you, you're talking about the conditions and you, you I remember your campaigning um, on some of the very things that, that you're working on right now. I remember the, the, one of the forums that I had the, the honor of, uh, of being a host of, and you were there and your opponent uh, was not mm-hmm. there. And you, you, you took all the questions though by yourself head on and were able to express mm-hmm. your, 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 uh, your platform. Um, but then COVID hit and it disrupted all of us. And so oh. my question is about leadership, right? Mm-hmm. You were talking about leadership a lot in your, in your campaign. But how how has that differed? Then, what changed from how how does how does that differ from when you were campaigning? You took the job, and then the worst pandemic in a hundred years hit. Oh, it was um, you know it was very trying times. And one of the very first things I did, the very first thing I did after I was sworn in, is I took a tour of that jail. Um, one of the things that I saw is that officers were not adhering to our mask protocol. We fixed that immediately. The next thing that I saw and encountered were prisoners, uh, men and women who were incarcerated, who were in distress. Um, they were very upset. And um, we had had an incident in December that was not publicized, that no one knows even happened um, under the watch of the past administration. There was a whole unit, and that's that's a hundred and twenty, you know, men that are incarcerated, and they all refused to go in their cell. hundred and twenty, and they linked arms, and they were not violent, um, but those kinds of things can turn on a dime, and we literally had to send teams in and deploy mace and things like that to uh, restore order. 
And, um, you know, I, I know the public has no idea how close we came in that instance in mid-December um, <laughs> to having a really serious disruption inside that jail related to the conditions of COVID. Mm-hmm. Sh- Charmaine, Charmaine, you and I have talked about this subject that I kind of want to bring up with you, and it deals with mm-hmm. last week George Floyd. George Floyd's murder um, was avenged. And I'll be candid, this is something Byron and I feel really good about, that that misbehavior on the part of law enforcement, he's being punished, and hopefully that sends a strong message. You and I have talked about why it seems that in so many police departments, sheriff's offices, there seems to be this prevailing sense of bigotry and how hard that is to fix. Um, We'd love to hear your ideas on this because I know you really understand it deeply. I do. I do understand it. I I understand the history of it. Uh, I have a very unique perspective in the fact that I've spent 33 years in this uniform, in this business, embedded in the sheriff's office, working in the jail and various areas in the sheriff's office. And, uh, you know, I'll tell you, it is. It was um, a predominantly white male organization, and there were many times in my career, in my history of my career, that I watched um, discrimination, that I watched inappropriate behavior. Well, you were uh, discriminated against as a as a gay woman, correct? Yes, I was absolutely. <laughs> yeah, as a gay woman, as a woman. It's tough. It was tough in this. And we were I was in that first wave of women that came out. And wow, that was uh, those were some harsh times to uh, to navigate through. But many of us did. And many of us did succeed. And lots of women have have done great things in this in this arena of being in law enforcement. Um, But I will tell you that, yes, historically, uh, sheriff's offices in particular, tend to be a, um, you know, more 1950s model. Uh, and that's what I saw in the sheriff's office for many, many, many years. So I want to chime in here and ask, how hard is it to change that kind of 1950s model culture, mm-hmm. um, especially considering the times that we're in now where there's seems to be more of an adversarial relationship between some members of the public and sheriff's offices and police offices. How do you diversify the Hamlin County Sheriff's offices with more women and more minorities? Well, you do it very intentionally, which is exactly what I'm doing. It's exactly what I did. Uh, the, one of the first actions that I had was uh, I promoted a woman who has a 30 year career in our department a black woman, uh, Jackie Reed, who is now a major. She was a lieutenant um, and had been a lieutenant for many years, promoted to sergeant, then lieutenant. And I promoted her to major uh, because she's fabulous. And we needed her talent and her ability and her diversity. And she's, oh, she's just done fabulously. She's in charge of our community affairs division. Um, historically, I watched her not get promoted. I watched men 
get promoted uh, over her. And I watched the ways that it was explained and whatever their, you know, uh, the ways that they were able to skirt the issue of not promoting women. Um, you know, she was exceptional to be a black woman and make the rank of lieutenant in our department. Uh, so, you know, but when it came time to putting those people in, you know, I mean, when I say those people, us, a minority, when it came time of putting us in those positions, when it was decision making, they didn't want us there. They didn't want us at the table. And um, so I have promoted uh, Jackie Reed. I've also uh, brought on a black woman as our public information officer. You might know her, Kyla Woods. She's fabulous. Uh, I have a. She's terrific. Oh, she's uh, more. Yeah, she's so great. And uh, I have a, um, a black administrative assistant. And I am bringing on more and more diversity very intentionally. Uh, we have a black uh, woman who is a sergeant, who is our recruiter, and we are just moving ahead with that. The other thing that we're doing is we are, we are intentionally engaging in conversations that can be uncomfortable. I think you have to have those conversations and then you also have to hold people accountable when there are people in your organization who are doing and saying inappropriate things, those things get put on the table and we deal with them right away. And we, you know, we put that out. Here is, here's our objectives and you're going to see that through our actions. Now, one thing I will mention to you, um, I'm wearing a, my uniform, but you, you, you can't see me, but I'm wearing my uniform and I have on my uniform an able pin. It's a little round pin sits over my pocket. I put it on my uniform because it is the ABLE training that we were one of 34 agencies in the nation to pilot this training. Um, the ABLE training is active bystandership for law enforcement and it's eight hours of training. And what this training does is it empowers officers, regardless of rank, section, to step up and intervene when they see something excessive when they see something inappropriate. It also encourages those conversations about bias, about race, about trust that and the mistrust that is going on in our nation right now. And I was one of the first officers to go through it and it's fabulous. We now have trained up 100 officers. Everybody in the organization is gonna be trained in this and every person that gets this training is gonna wear this same pin that I'm wearing now. That's fantastic, and actually, I hadn't even, I don't know about you, Byron, but I hadn't even heard there was anything like this out there. I mean, and that's really important for the public to know, because mm -hmm. we all looked at the George Floyd situation or the Breonna Taylor situation and wondered, why didn't anyone stop it? Mm -hmm. well, I know, exactly. Mm -hmm. Go ahead, Brian. Byron. Well, sorry, I was I was actually just piggybacking on what she said because that's always a question. People wonder why didn't someone intervene, and and so you can go ahead, uh, Sheriff McGuffey, with, with your answer there. But but that's what I I was just adding to really. I know exactly why the officers didn't intervene, and I know why the public didn't intervene. The officers didn't intervene because they have their careers. To worry about. They have their livelihoods to worry about, and they could easily and would be, I promise you, vilified 
for stepping in and grabbing a senior officer. Okay, this guy was a senior officer who obviously had some clout in the department and had had a history of some inappropriate things that he wasn't properly disciplined for. That's been I mean, that's in the news. Uh, It is something that's been talked about and written about. Um, Those officers knew that if they intervened in that situation, um, they would they would likely be um, well, they'd be hurt in lots of ways. Uh, either through no promotions or, you know, just personnel decisions that would go against them or even discipline for even doing that. I mean, we live in a paramilitary organization when we work in the sheriff's office here. And that's exactly why we have to tell people it's okay to intervene. Now, on the side of the public, um, those men and women that were standing and watching that were very fearful. They were fearful for a good reason. They would have also been arrested, I promise you, had they intervened in that. And we don't want the public to put themselves in harm's way when when we're working and when we're in a dynamic crisis type situation. But certainly the officers should be trained to do so. And that's what we're doing now. Well, I think we all live in fear. We're grateful for law enforcement because you keep our community safe. But I can Mm -hmm. say, and I am not a black woman, if I see a a cop, I hit the brakes, I behave, I start (laughs) to follow any rules I might be breaking. So we're kind of, we're, we're trained to defer to law enforcement. So I understand, thankfully, thankfully, someone from the public tape what was going on in the Floyd situation, the Floyd murder. But I do understand how the public can be fearful of what's going to happen to them if they intervene. Right, right. Um, yeah. Most certainly, I, you know, I have intervened in different things in my career. And in fact, that's why I was fired, by the way, <laughs> from the sheriff's office just, uh, what, three years ago, uh, mm-hmm. because I continued to speak up and speak out about the excessive use of force and the fact that that officers weren't being held accountable. And and I tell you right now, it is an absolute fact. And even the sheriff, uh, the past sheriff, you know, admitted it, talked about it. He told me to go with the flow, uh, to stand down, to be quiet, uh, you know, and I refused to do that. And, you know, they couldn't just just fire me outright. It had to be a situation where it was engineered. And I think that is what happens to people in their careers. Uh, You can, you know, situations can be engineered to get you out. And that's what they did with me. Mm. One thing Byron and I really write about is the importance of standing up. In standing up for people who are not like you, for having nerve, for being brave. And it's one thing that we're hoping as a result of what we've written in just one small way that people start to feel a little more empowered. Uh, it, it does It does take some nerve to do what is the humane thing often. It really does. I mean, you know, and I've seen it many, many times in my career. And, and here's the other uh, thing I'd like to mention to you is I've seen officers step up and do the right thing. I absolutely have. You know, the times that we're in right now, 
People talk a lot about what they've seen officers do wrong and so forth. But I, I have seen officers put themselves in harm's way. I've seen them, you know, step up above and beyond call of duty. And something else that I've seen is I've seen people who are incarcerated step up and do the right thing as well. You know, there have been times when I was a young officer uh, that um, you knew when you were in, I mean, I could supervise a hundred a hundred men and women at a time, right? And we separate the men and women, but I could be standing in front of a hundred women and um, taking command and control about what everybody has to do. But I promise you, I knew that there were certain women in that group that would help me if I really needed it. They would step up and do the right thing. And they were incarcerated. Um, you know, just because you're incarcerated doesn't mean, you know, you're a bad person necessarily. Uh, so, yeah, I encourage people to do that across the board. And, you know, that 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 is what um, incarcer incarceration, the system is supposed to do. It's supposed to send you on the correct path to reform. And that sounds like, you know, right. Some 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 of the things that you've experienced there. Uh, has worked. I know it doesn't always work. I'm no, yeah, I, I'm, I don't have a pie in the sky, you know, <laughs> right, right. but, but I know it does work. And, and I, you know, anybody who's been involved in, you know, meeting with prisoners and, and people who are incarcerated, which I have been, you, you know, this, uh, you know, if you have a relative who's ever mm -hmm. been in prison, that person is still your relative and you still love them as if you loved them when they were 12, you know? So, right. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. One one thing I, I'd I, I'd like to um, to ask. So we've talked a lot about one side against um, police law enforcement. Is there something that you and you you did just hint on it? But is there something that you need the public to know right now in these times about law enforcement, whether those are your initiatives? or whether it's what you're seeing that needs to happen nationally. Is there is there something that you need to tell us, the public, that they don't understand or they may not know? Well, something that they may not know is there are many, many officers in uniform who are, who are traumatized by what's going on. We're absolutely traumatized. Those officers who are, who, who get up in the morning to go do the right thing, uh, who ca were called to this profession. And there are many of us, I'm one of them, that was called to this profession. You couldn't drag me away from it with a, you know, with, with horses. I'm, I'm here. I want to be here. And we are suffering. Um, we're suffering because we know that there are officers who have done uh, bad things, horrendous things. Um, and, and we are frustrated with how to fix those things and how to increase this trust that we know needs to happen. And um, there've been a lot of tears across the board, just so people know. There've been a lot of officers who are who have cried. I watched them stand there and cry when the George Floyd verdict was read. Um, our officers were crying. Um, and, you know, we are feeling it and, and we want to do the right thing. Many of us, lots of us, it is, um, it's very hard right now to be a person in uniform 
and um, and feel that kind of emotion. And sometimes the negative emotions that are directed towards you. And how do you explain to the public, hey, that's not me, right? Because I could tell you right now, every a uniform is a uniform is a uniform. And that's the way the public sees it. Uh, but something that the public should know is that, yes, uh, police officers, officers who work in incarceration environments, um, we are hurting and we need some help and we need people to come in and counsel us and and tell us it's going to be OK, too. And um, and we're working towards those improvements. Lots of us are, you know, very, very strongly working towards that and believe in it. Sheriff, one thing that I'll say is um, Hamilton County is is lucky to have you. And I was very honored to be able to vote for you. And I believe that your leadership is going to go much further than Southwest Ohio. The things you're doing, the things you're saying. And I also know you, so I know you're doing this for the right reasons, not for any notoriety or publicity, but I hope you get a heck of a lot of it because being a role model in in today's world is important. So I, from Byron and me, thank you so much for being who you are. Thank you, thank you both. I appreciate you, I appreciate you talking to me. Um, you know, I really look forward to seeing you tonight. So thank you. So Byron's going to close us out with a hopeful moment and uh, go out and get the book, people, because it's out there for you to read. Yes, it is. And I must ask you, as I go into this hopeful moment, were either of you Girl Scouts? Okay. Yes, Jennifer was. <laughs> Jennifer was a girl scout. I knew that because because I because I I know the church that you, the basement of the church that you were a girl scout in. And I was a brownie leader. That's exactly right. So, <laughs> so you're gonna like this then, Miss Girl Scout. Um, so anybody who knows me knows I love Frank Sinatra. I'm always singing Frank Sinatra. Can you believe that? So I am always thankful to hear Frank singing Johnny Birch's. Excuse me, Johnny Burke's wonderful hit. Pennies from Heaven. He wrote that. You guys know Pennies from Heaven. You know that. Yes. Leave it to the Girl Scouts and Google and its parent company Alphabet to go one better than Pennies from Heaven. So can you say Thin Mints from Heaven? Yes, that's what I said. Thin (laughs) Mints from Heaven. Uh, Alphabet, the parent company of Google, is rolling out a pilot program to deliver thin mints from their wing drones to a small community in Virginia. The Skyline, the Girl Scouts of Skyline are making cookie drops from wings to boost cookie sales. That's, so that's very my cool. hopeful moment. Wow. <laughs> Keep the people of Central Virginia from their thin mints. That's awesome. There you go. It's an innovative, those innovative Girl Scouts. I tell you, they always come up with some new different things. Well, we're going to say goodbye again for this week. But again, um, we want to thank our our guest, Sheriff Charmaine McGuffey of Hamilton County, Ohio, for the innovative um, law enforcement techniques and strategies that she's implementing. Uh, As Jennifer, as you said, Jennifer is really going to go uh, further than than just these. these borders of Southwest Ohio. 
So thanks again. Thank and you. We'll see, we'll see you next week. Thank you.